Hello. I would encourage you to grab a Bible because this is a long read. John chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 4, and then we're skipping. We're doing 17 to 48. Uh, This is on page 1575 of the Church Bibles. Okay, so John chapter 11, the death of Lazarus. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Then on to verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his feet and his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Thank you, Naomi. Let me start by by praying for us. Lord, we thank you for this incredible moment in the Gospels where you brought life where there was none. Lord, would you bring life to us this evening? Would you magnify your name? Would you reveal more about who you are to us through your word? Would you speak to us? And... um, Would you remind us, would you reveal to us more of your life-giving identity? Amen. 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 Well, good evening. And um, 
we're continuing on. Last week we looked at John chapter 10. Today we're in John chapter 11. And I don't know whether it strikes you, but really this is something of a pivotal moment in the Gospels. This is the end, really, of the first half of John's Gospel, which has really been focused on these um, series of signs, which are all about Jesus' identity. So we've seen him uh, turn water into wine, heal the... um, crippled man, feeding 5,000. And really, this is something of a crescendo moment, something of a a moment really where it all comes to a head. The greatest sign that Jesus performs is one that reveals his central purpose to bring life. He brings life to a man who's been dead for four days, and his central purpose is revealed. His central purpose is pointed to that he is the one who's come to bring life to those who believe and follow him. But it's also the, the beginning of the second half of John's gospel. And if you've ever read John's gospel, you'll see that's really um, all about the trajectory, all, the, all about Jesus' journey to the cross. And it's at this moment that Jesus' journey towards the cross is set. It's heard at the end of that passage um, that some who, who heard this are so disquieted, um, so worried about people believing in him that they... They're worried that what will happen if, that ha- if people do start to believe in him. A little bit later in verse 53, he says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So following this miracle, Jesus' course is set, that he's on the trajectory to the crucifixion. And of course, his, what follows is resurrection. But this moment is not just significant uh, for the miracle that we have in front of us. Actually, what's really fascinating um, is, is the dialogue that, that works up to the miracle. Actually, there's quite a long dialogue that Jesus has with the two sisters. And really, what's Jesus doing in that dialogue? Well, I think he's really speaking hope and he's speaking comfort to the two sisters, to Martha and to Mary. He's helping them really to deal with their brother's death. And it's worth remembering here that Jesus is our example as well as the object of our worship. He's an example of what it means to be perfectly obedient to the Father, He's our example of what it means to be about the Father's business. And in this passage here, I think Jesus is giving us something of the perfect example of how to respond to suffering and tragedy. And I, I want to look at that this evening, really, and say, well, what do we learn from Jesus' response to suffering and tragedy, looking at Jesus' example? Now, perhaps I imagine... You weren't expecting to be thinking about suffering uh, this evening. And, and I guess there might be some of you where it just feels suffer- there's suffering at the moment in your life, so it just feels too raw, too relevant almost to want to think about suffering. There may be others of you who say, well, actually, this is my life's fine at the moment. I don't, this is almost not relevant at all. I don't really want to have to think about suffering when everything's going fine. I want to give you a few reasons before we go into um, the text, just of why I think it's really important that we look at this whole topic. First of those is that really suffering and death are part of the reality of life. There's actually no point in trying to avoid them. Uh, Ernst Becker, a secular uh, psychologist and philosopher, uh, in his book, The Denial of Death, said this. I think that taking life seriously means something like this. that, That whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation. Of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise... It is false. What he's really saying is if you try to live life denying the reality of death and suffering and tragedy, saying, well, you know, I can kind of skirt around them. I can kind of avoid them. Actually, that's just naive. Actually, that is the reality of life. And so in some ways, every single one of us, whatever our worldview or philosophy, have to come up with a a way of thinking about suffering. Everyone has to think, how do I make sense of suffering regardless of what we believe? Actually, the Bible is really realistic about the reality of suffering in our lives. Much of the Bible is full of um, either engaging with the question of suffering itself, think about the book of Job or the beginning of Genesis, engaging with the question of why is there suffering in the world at all? But it's also describing the events of suffering. Think about the book of Exodus, describing the slavery of the people of Israel. It's also um, the response to the, the experience of suffering. Think about the book of Psalms, a prayer book which is filled with different Psalms which capture sometimes great joy, elation and worship, but sometimes real despair and and a lack of hope, a responding to really difficult circumstances. So the Bible is very realistic about the reality of suffering in our lives. The second reason I think it's really relevant is because we are a church family and we believe 
um, that as we are one body. We have a responsibility to care for one another. So even if you personally aren't going through suffering this evening, actually, we have a responsibility to care for those who are. You know, think about the, in Romans chapter 12, those of you on the weekend away, those instructions, weep uh, with those who are weeping, mourn with those who mourn. And we don't want to be Job, Job's comforters. We don't want to be people who give bad advice to each other. We don't want to uh, just kind of give each other platitudes or, or maybe give people the wrong reasons for why they're suffering. So actually, this is helpful for us to think, how do we learn how to help those who are suffering in our community, in our family? How do we help our brothers and sisters? I think if you're not a Christian, actually this whole question is very relevant to you. I think many people who aren't Christians, probably one of their first questions or or even barriers to faith would be, how could a good God allow suffering in the world? How can he allow misery or pain or anguish? You can even hear it in the passage we're looking at. Uh, In verse 37, they said, "Could could not he who opened the eyes of a blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's kind of very similar. It's another, another way of putting the same question. Couldn't he have stopped this? Couldn't he have saved this? And actually, anytime anyone goes through suffering, actually, they're often asking that question, even if they're not religious believers. Um, my brother and his wife, uh, about three years ago, uh, lost their, their twin daughters. Uh, one was at birth and one was two weeks later. They were born uh, very premature and they didn't survive. And um, actually, none of my family are Christian. And what was remarkable is... Um, It's through that experience how many of my family, how how much they felt a sincere anger with God, a God who they didn't believe in, but there was a really palpable um, frustration, anger, questions, why. And really it was all directed, much of it was directed towards the God that they didn't believe in. So I think many are asking, well, what is the Christian answer to suffering? Well, how how do we respond to that as Christians? And finally, I would argue that Actually, the secular answer to this question is very unsatisfying. Let me read you a quote from Richard Dawkins, um, really engaging with the question of suffering. So the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. That is the answer. The secular answer to the question of suffering really is, well, there is no rhyme or reason to it. And at best, you have to kind of avoid it or kind of suppress it and push it to the side of your life and just try to get on with life. Actually, if you're a hedonist, you know, basically, if you believe there's no fundamental narrative to the universe, if you think life is really all about being as happy as possible, which, let's be honest, the vast majority of um, Londoners would describe themselves as, actually, it's quite hard to deal with the problem of suffering because your life is, you know, really say, well, actually, ultimately, life is about maximizing happiness. So you haven't got an underlying narrative. You haven't got a kind of rationale or even you can't find any meaning in suffering. Really, it's about just trying to avoid suffering as much as possible. Even some kind of uh, semi-atheist philosophies like the Buddhist philosophy or the, or the Stoics, the Greek philosophy, which would say something like, you just need to detach yourself from your emotions. You just need to kind of um, not really feel pain. That would be one, one answer to this problem. Actually, many of us would say, well, that's just not really possible. That's not really a convincing or satisfying answer to the problem of pain and suffering. And so this evening, I want to look at Jesus' response to suffering his encounter with Mary and Martha, and indeed what he uh, does in Lazarus's life. I really want to take these scenes in turn, and I would draw out from each scene a principle, something of, of how does Jesus respond to suffering. And as we take these three principles then, I think we're going to get something of a framework, a kind of uh, under, antidote to the problem of suffering. I'm not going to give you an intellectual treatise on the question of suffering this evening. What I want to do is just say, well, how does Jesus comfort, how does Jesus respond to suffering in our lives? I'm going to take them in a slightly different order. I want to start with his response to Mary. I want to show you the first principle this evening is not denial, but presence. Jesus doesn't deny the pain, but is present with us in the pain of suffering in our lives. Now, if you look at Jesus' response to Mary, I think you'll see, actually, it's quite a surprising response. It's not what you'd expect. You know, in a moment, he's about to heal her brother. 
So you'd think, well, when she's, when she's in tears, when she's suffering, that he would have said, well, hang on a minute. I'm just going to go and solve this problem. But he doesn't do that. Actually, Mary asks him the same question that her sister does. In verse 32, she said, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She makes the same kind of comment that Martha does. But rather than explaining the situation or giving her truth, which is what he does for Martha, and we'll come on to that in a moment, Jesus cries with her. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And really, Jesus' response to, to Mary is really one of profound grief. It's a strong emotional response. In verse 33, uh, it describes him as being deeply moved, as greatly troubled. One commentator translated this, he became deeply agitated in his spirit and shook with emotion. So much so that he bursts into tears. There's clearly deep sadness here. You can see that by his tears. You can also see that he's moved again when he comes to the tomb in verse 38. There's also actually hints of anger here. The, the verb that is translated for us in this translation as deeply moved actually would literally be translated snort with indignation. It kind of suggests some kind of displeasure. It's actually the same verb that's used. Do you remember when Mary uh, breaks the jar of nard over Jesus' feet and it's worth 20,000 pounds? And, uh, and some of the, the people who are looking on are indignant. They're kind of outraged. How could you spend 20,000 pounds? How could you waste something of so valuable on Jesus' feet? It's the same verb here, that indignant, that is used to describe um, Jesus' emotional response. And really, I think what he's describing here is, what we see here in Jesus is, is simply genuine grief. We see a combination of sadness and actually anger as well. And often, if any of those of you who experience grief, will often have experienced some level of anger or frustration as well as sadness. Really, I think it's, first of all, pointing us to the reality that as well as being fully God, Jesus is also fully man. This is a human response to the problem of suffering. Let's not forget here that Jesus is friends with Lazarus. He's at the death of his friend. But also, I think this frustration actually reflects a biblical worldview. It reflects something of the reality that we live in a fallen world. When you express frustration, what are you really saying? You're saying, things are not as they ought to be. This is not right. That's what you're saying when you're frustrated at something. And that's actually exactly the biblical understanding of suffering. That the world was created perfect, but it was destroyed as Adam and Eve brought sin into the garden. As they... um, as then of, of human history, for generation afterwards, sin becomes part of the way we interact with each other. Death enters the world. Actually, the Christian understanding of the, of the world is that we, although we were created perfect, we live in a fallen world, a world that's not perfect. And so when we experience grief, when we experience even frustration, in some way we're tapping into the, the, the not-as-it-should-be-ness of the world and saying, actually, this isn't right. It's like almost... Um, so it's almost like saying that actually, in one way, even our grief points to the fact that there should be an eternity. Because actually it says, well, this isn't right, this isn't how it should be. And the answer, of course, is that's good. That's good that you see that because it isn't how it will be one day. And we'll come on to the resurrection hope. But even our grief signals something of the, of the created reality that we exist in. But apart from his own grief, I think Jesus is entering into Mary's grief. See, it's actually in verse 33, when Jesus sees Mary weeping, that he, we see him being troubled. And his response to her is crying with her, entering into her sadness and her pain. And actually, I think this is a, this is a bit of a glimpse, a small uh, thimbleful of a much bigger picture, really, much big, bib, bigger biblical truth, which is that God is with us in our pain. You know, I don't know if you've ever experienced grief, but often actually with grief comes isolation. I think back to um, when my brother and his wife lost um, their daughters, and my brother, they're not Christian, and, and actually quite a few of their friends withdrew from them. It's quite the opposite of what you'd expect. They were going through the most profound grief in their lives, but actually some of the people who they would have looked to to trust in some kind of way to support them actually withdrew from them because they couldn't deal with the pain of uh, the pain that they were going through. And actually, it's really common. We almost want to detach. Whenever we go through grief, we want to detach from the pain. All, all of us and, and those around us want to detach away from the pain that we're going through. And actually, those of you who've experienced grief and who are Christians may well have also said, well, it feels like God is absent in my grief. And so there's, there's a kind of sense of isolation or absence when we go through suffering. 
And actually this truth, this profound truth that God comes to be with us in our pain is the direct antidote to that sense of isolation in the pain. Actually, this is a, a picture really of a, a biblical reality we see most prominently really in, in, the, in the incarnation. Jesus coming to be with us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's one of the names we have for Jesus. It's this grand narrative that Jesus is entering into our broken, messy world actually to suffer for us. Jesus experiences the suffering, the brokenness of the world, experiences that ultimately in in the humiliation and the death on the cross. Jesus goes through the way of suffering. He's called the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. Jesus experiences the suffering that many of us will experience, perhaps probably in a much more profound way than, than we might. He enters into that suffering. Why? To bring an end to that suffering. Because Jesus captured, uh, makes a way on the cross that we might come into that eternal place, that Revelation 21 place that we're going to talk about with Martha, of, of a place where there's no more suffering and no more pain. Jesus, by entering into our suffering, actually makes a way out of suffering for us. I think this, this, this uh, truth, should we say it, this essential truth that God suffers with us is really important when you're going through suffering. There's actually two truths that are really important not to lose sight of. One is his sovereignty, God's sovereignty, the knowledge that God is in control. And if you haven't keyed into that, I won't talk about that much tonight. But um, when Andrew did the sermon series on Psalm 107, about, about four or five of the way through, one of those is all about the sovereignty of God in suffering. So I encourage you to look at that. But one of these is the essential truth that God is sovereign, that he's in control. That's good news because it means actually whatever I'm going through in some way, I trust and know that you're in control, God. And that that's, a, that's meant to be pastorally comforting to us because we know that his hands are good and that he's good and he is in control. But it's also that he's suffered with us, that he's utterly trustworthy because he's come down and experienced suffering with us. And actually to lose one of these two truths is to, to run aground. If you see his sovereignty without suffering, you'll say, well, I, I know that you're good, but it feels like you're aloof apart from my suffering. If you see his suffering without his sovereignty, then you'll say, well, yeah, I see that you're good, but you're not fundamentally in control. You're not able to change my situation. It's only when you see these two truths together that he is both sovereign both sovereignly in control and also that he came to suffer with us, that we can say he really is the true comfort in suffering. Of course, also we've got the reality that Jesus uh, speaks of, that he leaves his Holy Spirit with us. The Holy Spirit in chapter 14 is described as helper, also described as comforter, also translated as comforter. And there's a whole uh, profound level of comfort that actually the work of the Holy Spirit brings in your heart. I, I won't um, go into that much more tonight, but I think that's a, it's a really important thing to remember that, that it's not just a kind of logical thought, not just truth, but it's also actually the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, speaking comfort to our hearts in prayer. What does this mean for us then? What does it mean for us that God is with us in our suffering? Well, the first thing it says to me, looking at this passage, is that grief is actually a perfectly healthy and good thing. Actually, it's, it's not a Christian thing to deny your emotions and to say, well, well, because I'm a Christian and I need to glorify God, I'm not going to express that I'm sad right now. Actually, that's, per- that's a really reasonable response to suffering, to express anger and grief and sadness to God. And you see it all the way through the Psalms. In Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 2, uh, Stephen has been killed. You remember Stephen the martyr. And it says this, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now, maybe they could have seen the goodness of God in that. They could have said, look, it's God is sovereign and you know, it's amazing that Stephen produced such an incredible witness they, that so many probably people were drawn towards God in that. And of course, in the sovereignty of God, we can see that even maybe that would have challenged Paul. Paul was there at that, at that moment. But it doesn't stop them being sad. It doesn't stop them be, it, it, expressing lamentation, lamentation like, like being sad about the fact that, that Stephen has died. So to minimize your grief is not a biblical thing. Let me read to you from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones Uh, speaking on the subject, a British preacher from the uh, mid-20th century. What we are really saying is that the Christian is not one who has become immune to what is happening around him. We need to emphasize this truth because there are certain people whose whole notion and conception of Christian life makes the Christian quite unnatural. Grief and sorrow are something to which the Christian is subject, and the absence of a feeling of grief is unnatural. It goes beyond the New Testament. It savors more of a stoic or psychological state produced by a cult than of Christianity. The Christian has something that enables him to rise above these things, but the glory of the Christian life is that you rise above them 
though you feel them. It is not an absence of feeling. This is an important dividing line. So grief is, is not something to be avoided. But actually, our grief will look different to the world. In 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 13, Paul says this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's not saying I, that you do not grieve. What he's saying is I don't want you to grieve like everybody else who has no hope. So your grieving will look different. How will it look different? Well, I think it's a grieving which, which knows a resurrection hope. So if you're grieving the death of one who's in Christ, there's a resurrection hope to hang on to. It's a grieving that knows that God is in control. But really at the very center of what I would describe as godly grief, not godly grief over your sin, but the, the, a godly grief that we're describing here, is a grief that pushes you towards God and not away from God. The godly response is not one that um, kind of sits in its, in its kind of grief and just, just kind of wells up in that grief. Actually, it's a grief that draws you towards God, that says, in, in your, I know the only one who will satisfy me in my grief, the only one who I can run to when I'm looking around the brokenness of the world and, and experiencing something of the broken reality of this world is you, Lord. And so it's grief that leads you towards God. There's a great, wonderful example of this in Psalm 42. captures both these principles of grieving and also in rejoicing. Even Which it sounds funny, right? To grieve and rejoice. It sounds almost impossible. But that's the biblical reality, to do both, actually. To, to experience the pain of the world and also to rejoice and worship God at the same time. So in verse, uh, chap- Psalm 42, sorry, um, it describes this. It says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. So no, no denying of experience there. The psalmist pouring out his soul before God, and his, his tears have been his uh, food day and night. So he's no stranger to grieving. But he goes on, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall say again, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. From within this, this suffering, the psalmist is rejoicing. That's a wonderful picture of the Christian life, actually, that there will be times when we are, we are grieving, and perhaps in the midst of those tears, we are also worshipping. And that's actually something that brings great glory to God, is as you, as you are going through the grief of life, that there's something beautiful about the saints who are trusting God and worshipping him and, and really glorifying his name in responding to him um, in the midst of that suffering. The third thing, the uh, implication for us, is that there's an implication for us, when we're talking about supporting those who are suffering, that's why it says weep with those who weep. That's why it says mourn with those who mourn. Because actually there's something really powerful about the ministry of presence, of just being with one another when we're going through suffering. We don't always have to try and solve all the problems. We, I mean, there is a place for speaking truth to each other. It's really important. But there's also something about just being present with people in their suffering, of grieving with them. And if you speak to anybody who's experienced suffering, they'll say that's, that's something which is deeply um, helpful for them. So that's, that's Jesus' engagement with suffering with Mary. But let's, let's turn to Martha. The second principle I want to introduce you to in engaging with suffering, which we see in Jesus here, is not despair, but true hope. Jesus doesn't offer platitudes. Actually, he offers true and lasting hope for suffering. With Mary, he goes and is present with her. But with Martha, he offers a very different approach. He comforts her with his words, with truth. Now, how would you comfort someone whose family member had been dead four days as Martha has. Now often in our culture, if you were with someone who'd, who'd recently lost someone, often you would hear a reference to the afterlife. You might hear someone saying, well, they're in a better place now, or they're looking down on you. And actually that often might come from someone who has no religious or spiritual beliefs. And actually this is the source of Martha's hope. Verse 23, Jesus tells her her brother will rise again. And what's her response? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What she's actually talking about is the kind of prevailing Jewish understanding at the time, which was basically that there would be a resurrection. This is a pharisaical belief. Um, maybe she's just repeating what others have told her. You know, in the last four days, probably people have been comforting her. Maybe she's just saying back to him. Maybe she doesn't even believe it, but she's just kind of saying, well, I know, you know, he's in, in a better place. That kind of idea. We're not, we're not really sure exactly. But 
And there may be some of you who hear Martha's words or um, the modern equivalent and say, well, that's a nice idea, but isn't that just a spiritual platitude? What basis or foundation do you have for saying that? You know, there have been many who, if there are many a skeptic who said something like, well, no one's ever come back. And obviously, we're not talking about Jesus has come back from the dead and he's resurrected Lazarus. But if you're a skeptic, you've heard that phrase, no one has ever come back. What they're really saying is, how do you know? How do you know that, that, that there's, a, there's a hope, an eternal hope, hope after death? And Jesus actually locates himself as the hope of resurrection. In verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall he live. Jesus is not contradicting Martha's hope, but he's locating the reason for her hope, not in some kind of religious, wishful thinking, but in himself. He's saying she can be confident because of him. What does he mean by this? What does he mean when he just describes himself as the resurrection and the life? I think he's first, he's undoubtedly referring to his own resurrection, Nine chapters later, Jesus will be, will be crucified, put in a Roman tomb, but three days later, he will rise again. His resurrection will be attested to by hundreds of eyewitnesses. Some of those eyewitnesses will, experience, will see him eating fish. They'll, they'll put his, their fingers in his wounds, in his side. They'll see that he's not just a kind of mass hallucination, not just a kind of a spirit returning to them, but he's actually a resurrected body. He's God in the flesh who's been resurrected. Actually, we can be sure that these are authentic accounts, that the, the eyewitness, it, the, uh, that we can believe these accounts. Of, it's because the guys who wrote these accounts were willing to die for this fact. When they wrote about Jesus, seeing Jesus resurrected, they were absolutely convinced in it because they were willing to die for that. And they'd, they'd seen him with their own eyes and they were willing to die for that truth. So we can be sure that this resurrection is real. But Jesus is not only talking about his own resurrection. He continues to, in verse uh, 25 and 26 uh, to describe a promise for others. He said, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What he's saying is though, those who believe in me, though they die, will experience resurrection at the last day. They will experience eternal life. And then he turns it around in verse 26 and said, Although that probably the vast majority of, of those who believe and follow Christ will die before his return. Obviously, those who are here when, he, when Jesus comes to return won't actually experience death. But even those who die physically before his return will never truly die because they will experience eternal life. So Lazarus's resurrection then is significant, not because it gives relief to Martha and Mary that they have their brother back. Lazarus's resurrection is significant because it's a, it's a picture that points to a greater future reality, both of Christ's resurrection and the resurrection future that awaits those who believe in him, those who follow him. It's a picture of the future reality for those who trust in Christ. It may not be obvious, but this future reality of the resurrection is the ultimate comfort to the suffering and tragedy in our lives. What it says is for those in Christ, your suffering will come to an end. The New Testament describes eternal life not as some kind of disembodied existence of spirits continuing. Actually, it describes um, bodies being resurrected, being restored, a physical reality where God is dwelling with his people and there is no more suffering, no more pain and no more death. Let me uh, read to you from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned from her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with his people, and they, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away, excuse me, he will wipe away, Wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Whatever your current trials, whatever the most difficult things in your life, either now or to come, which of those will be continuing in that, in that time? Actually, this is the answer to our trials, to our suffering, that there will be a time when our trials are over. 
Whatever your problems in life, there will not be a problem in eternity. There's a place where there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying and pain, where sin has been destroyed. Sin, the the scourge of our lives, the cause of broken relationships, of death, of all the, the evil in the world is gone. And for those who trust in him, there will be no more no more sin, no, a place where there's no more pain and death. Actually, this is great comfort for those who are reading Revelation. The first generation of disciples in the, the end of the first century who would have read John's words. They were undergoing huge persecution under the emperor Domitian. Um, homes were being plundered. Some were being sent to the, these are Christians. Some were being sent to the arena, uh, death by wild animals. Uh, some were being placed on, on metal uh, stakes, impaled on stakes, covered in pitch, and set alight. This is some of the, the persecution that the first followers of Christ would have read, would have been experiencing as they read these words in Revelation. What enabled them to sustain them? What gave them the hope as they experienced that suffering? And it's these words, these words of a new heaven and a new earth. They are the comfort in suffering. Actually, despite what you'd expect, given that opposition, despite the persecution the early Christians were feeling, the church exploded. And uh, there's an atheist philosopher, French atheist philosopher, Luke Ferry, um, in his book, A Brief History of Thought, A Philosophical Guide to Living, describes how Christian thought came to kind of become the dominant worldview in the Roman Empire. And in his opinion, the thing that kind of meant that Christian, the Christian worldview overtook Greek philosophy in the Roman Empire was the, actually that it was the best answer to suffering. So the Greek philosophers would have argued that in some way you're, you, you live on after death as a kind of spirit and it's part of the, the, the universe. You're, you kind of continue. But it wasn't a personal resurrection. It wasn't the idea that you will be, have life restored to you, that you'll be experiencing the love of God in a place where there's no more suffering. And it was this truth, this promise of a resurrection that gave not only the Christians hope, but also became such a compelling um, idea amongst, within the Roman Empire. I think this is something that we easily lose sight of in our culture because many of us don't experience suffering like the early Christians. And so it's actually, it's very rare that you basically find that the cultures where the more suffering is experienced, the more they hang on to the hope of eternity. And the cultures where basically we we live in a culture which is trying to minimize suffering or or generally we live in the West where we we can, by financial means or medical means or whatever, we can minimize suffering in our lives. Actually, we, we look less to the future. We rely less on this resurrection hope because we're minimizing the suffering. But actually, this is such a wonderful truth for us. Um, I must tell you the story of a man, uh, Terry. I was not a Christian. I was about 14, and I used to um, volunteer with this Catholic church to go and visit old people on Sunday afternoons. And um, what, I met this guy uh, called Terry who was uh, in his 70s. He had a motorcycle accident when he uh, uh, was 25, so he had brain damage, Very could see very little. And um, he asked me to read the Bible to him. So I I, I used to read the Bible to him, and the, the passage that he used to ask me to read to him was Revelation 21. And I read it to him for about a year before he died. And honestly, it was actually profound. The more I, I kind of reflected on it, and I didn't really understand the significance fully of it at the time, but that this man had basically had a very difficult life. He'd be, you know, been looked after by his family until he was about 60, and then his family had died, and he had to come to an old people's home. And uh, you know, he couldn't really see, didn't really leave his room very often. But the hope that kept him going, the hope, the, pro- the thing that brought him the most joy. I kept saying, let's read the Gospels. The thing that gave him the most joy was this, was this future promise, a revelation of the new heaven and the new earth where presumably he'd be able to see and he'd be able to enjoy the, uh, the, the family of God and be with God. This truth was what gave him real hope. So as much as I think it was, um, this is hope for, for those before and it's hope for guys like Terry, I think this is great comfort for us now. And actually it's a much greater comfort for anything than anything our secular culture offers. I think particularly in the area of death. Our contemporary culture really has nothing to say to death. Really, all it can do is avoid or deny death in some way. Um, you know, we kind of try, don't really like to talk about death. Actually, I think it's probably because we're trying to avoid even thinking about it. If there was an atheist, you remember the atheist bus adverts from a few years ago in London? They said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. I think if there was an atheist bus advert about death, it would probably say something like, death is probably a long way away, don't think about it and enjoy life. But even actually secular thinkers will tell you that that kind of approach doesn't really work. There's a fantastic um, quote from a, a writer in the New York Times. About, it was written about the time of the, the Beltway Sniper, this um, 
sniper uh, who was in Washington, D.C. a few years ago, who was, I believe, just, just shooting people randomly. So uh, it wasn't like there was any rhyme or reason to his attacks. And this is what she says uh, reflecting on, this, on, this, on this, reality, this phenomenon. We're always looking to make some sort of sense out of murder in order to keep it safely at bay. I do not fit the description. I do not live in that town. I would never have gone to that place or known that person. But what happens when there is no description, no place, nobody? Where do we go to find our peace of mind? The fact is, staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise, checking our cholesterol, or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. Find out what the profile is, identify the ways in which you do not fit it. But a sniper taking a clean shot, not in a crowd, but through the sight, reminds us horribly of death itself. Despite our best intentions, it is still, for the most part, random. And it is absolutely coming. And it is absolutely coming. Actually, we live in the shadow of death. Even our culture that tries to deny it, actually, we're consciously aware of death, the future. I think about the fact that we're a millennial generation where we seek to kind of make our stamp on life. And often that's actually out of, a, out of a reality that we've only got one life to live. We've only got a certain number of years. And so we've got to kind of make our stamp and, and kind of have a life worth living because we know that the finality of life, that there is a, a death is coming. It's like this looming specter we can't even mention. But it's an obvious reality that we can't deny. Is it possible that the very reason our culture can't talk about death, can't engage with the reality, is because they've untethered themselves from the only answer to that great existential dread which is found in Revelation. That actually, because they don't believe in the resurrection hope, because death is so difficult without that, they can't even engage with the prospect of death. Actually, this resurrection reality that Jesus is pointing to is the only credible answer to the reality of death. I think this is actually even a comfort to those of us who lose loved ones, which is obviously a source of suffering in our lives. Think about our life group. Two of uh, members of our life group have lost a parent in the past six months. I think Tanya mentioned it in her baptism, if you were here for that. And obviously, that's been really hard for them. But what's been incredible to see is the difference it has made for them to have a profound conviction that, both, that their respective parents are with Jesus and that there is a, a, a resurrection reality for both of them. And how much that means to them, how much that gives them hope, I think it's made the whole experience of losing their parent immeasurably easier. So I think this is a, a source of comfort even for those of us who, who aren't experiencing death. So that's Jesus' response to Martha. But I want to briefly turn before... Um, to Jesus' response to Lazarus, which always sounds a little bit silly because really what Jesus', Jesus response to Lazarus is resurrection. And really what I want to draw out is the third principle of Jesus' response to suffering in our lives, which is Jesus is not fatalistic. He's at work in our suffering. I think we've drawn up two really key truths here, that Jesus is present with us in our suffering now and is one day bringing a full resurrection hope. But there's somewhere in the middle between these two is a third pillar which is that actually God is at work in our suffering now. And actually in this situation, he brings complete healing and resurrection. And I think what I'm trying to argue for you is that you need to be open to the possibilities, open to the ways that God might use your suffering now for his glory, the purposes that God might have for your suffering. What I'm trying to argue against here is fatalism. You know, there'll be some who are religious believers, I think this is true of Islam, who when, when something bad happens in their life, they'll say, well, this is God's will. And just kind of accept it and just kind of trudge through the pain. Just grin and, grit, and, grit your teeth and go on. But actually, that's not the Christian response to suffering. Whilst we're not undermining God's sovereignty, we as Christians say, actually, we don't accept that what we have in front of us is necessarily the end of the story. Jesus doesn't accept what he has in front of him as the end of the story. Actually, Jesus works to bring healing and resurrection. Now, this might mean an openness to God's healing in the situation. Actually, that God might bring himself glory by bringing supernatural healing. I don't think we can read a passage like this and not accept that possibility. And actually, more than that, accept that possibility today, that that's something that continues. In John uh, chapter 14, verse 12, 12, uh, John gives his disciples, uh, sorry, Jesus gives his disciples a promise. He says to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. He's, he's mentioning that at the precise time that he's leaving the Holy Spirit with them. What, he, what I, I think I'm trying to open your mind to, so to speak, is, is really the possibility of supernatural healing in the power of the Holy Spirit. That actually Jesus' healing and resurrection here is a picture of what we see, maybe in part, as the kingdom continues and expands. We see that in the book of Acts. See, in Acts chapter 3, the healing of a crippled man at the gate of the temple. Uh, we see this in, in Acts chapter 5. It, you see it all the way through the book of Acts. And actually, the whole way through the New Testament, in James uh, chapter 5, the elders are instructed to lay hands on the sick, to pray for the sick. There's, a, there's, there's nothing in the New Testament that, that suggests this is confined to the apostolic era. That this is something that continues today. Now, I'm, I'm aware that many of you may have come from churches that, that haven't taught this, or perhaps even you might have believed this at one point, but you say, I haven't seen this. I don't, I don't really believe this. So I sent a text to a few friends on Friday night, and uh, just saying, well, wh- you know, where have you seen God healing? And I got, a, a, got an incredible number in my phone, which I won't read to you, but, um, and obviously there's a messiness in that, and, and, but, but a, some really profound stories of, of God's healing. Um, one guy uh, from a... Uh, church on the south coast of England, um, Brethren, a, reform, a kind of ex-Brethren church that kind of moved in the charismatic in some way. And there was a, w- a woman there uh, in a wheelchair, had a long-term condition that meant she was in a wheelchair. And uh, many years she prayed for healing and didn't see healing and actually wrote a very kind of honest book dealing with the, the not experiencing healing called Beyond Healing. Um, but then a little, bit, a little while later, a kind of relatively recent convert came to the church and felt led to ask her if he could pray for healing and then did see her, li- did see her healed, did see her able to walk and of the, whatever the condition was healed. And so she had to write another book called Unexpected Healing. <laughs> um, so that was pretty, pretty special. Another guy, um, Charlie Norris, some of you know him, he was part of the church a, a few years ago. Um, he gave me this story um, for a guy in a crippery in South Kensington said, we were talking, taking our time ordering, and uh, we chatted a little bit to the waitress, who was called Judith from Hungary. It was clear she was in some pain, and she explained her back was giving her a lot of grief. We said that we hoped it gets better soon, and we were about to take our seats when I thought, I wish I'd asked to pray for her. It wasn't too late, praise God. So I asked, her, asked if I could pray for her, and she said, yes, anything. So I prayed and asked her, is there, is there any difference? No difference, she replied. Sometimes God doesn't heal immediately, I thought. But I asked to pray again, and this time I laid my hand where she said the pain was. This time she said she felt a slight release. Good, I said. Then I said I would pray again for complete healing. So again, a simple prayer. She then started to cry and thanked me. She said that the pain had completely gone. I explained it was Jesus who had healed her, and that he's alive and that he loves her. An alpha course was starting that night, and my friend invited her. She said she wanted to go. Then she gave us free drinks. Praise God. <laughs> I don't want you to focus on the free drinks, but I want you to see that this is, a, this is a possible reality for the church. At least stay with me and accept that. Now, obviously, this is messier than that. There are times where we'll say, well, why did God not heal in that situation? You know, there's examples in the New Testament. Paul describes having a thorn in the flesh. There's, there's a possibility that he's talking about uh, some kind of sickness. And, and he, God doesn't remove that thorn from him. God may have other purposes. and We want to be open to all the different purposes that God will use our suffering. And we probably won't know all those purposes this side of heaven. I wouldn't want you to try and kind of list them all and say, okay, this just about justifies what I'm going through. It's not like that. But we see some purposes that God uses in our suffering. We see him growing our character. We see him um, humbling us. We see him might have other purposes, using us in some way to speak of him through our suffering. I think the, really the way to capture our approach to this, this question of healing is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three of Daniel's contemporaries. Um, and they say this. They're about to be thrown into a furnace, which is almost certainly to, going to lead to their death. And, so, and they say, answer, they, they're being told, I think, in some way to um, obey the, the king, and they're not going to do that because the king's asking them to go against God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I don't want us to hold back from this truth out of fear or out of a sense of fear of disappointment We hold intention that sometimes God heals and sometimes he doesn't. Neither do I want to even hold back out of a kind of sense of lowering scripture to our practical experience. 
that, that would not be the right way. We, we raise our, we, we kind of push into the, the, to the, the standard of Scripture. We push into the experience of Scripture. So really what this says is, I want you to encourage you to try and see the purposes in your suffering. Or to, and I think that's a, that will provide great comfort when you can try and see the way that God is using that for, for his glory and for, in your character. But also, obviously, an encouragement to pray for one another, to believe that we haven't just got words to comfort one another. We're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and we can pray for one another and ask God to move, to work in our suffering because that is our expectation from this passage. So then really, I just want to draw together what I've said really and say there are three, these three principles then to help us engage with the question of suffering. First of all, that Jesus doesn't deny the pain. He's with us in our suffering. Second of all, Jesus doesn't give platitudes. He gives us real, lasting, true hope. Third of all, that Jesus isn't fatalistic. He's working in our suffering. I want to suggest that these three pillars, so to speak, actually to lose any of these, is a bit, you'll be poorer for it. If you lose the first, and actually your response to suffering will be lacking something of the appreciation of the, just the hardness, the experience of suffering, that it's not easy. And actually, that when we're ministering to one another, we need to remember that, that there's just a difficulty in that. If you miss the second, then I think you're really lacking the real ultimate hope in suffering, that there is always an end to suffering. And if we lose that, we lose really our best answer to the problem of suffering. And if we lose the third pillar, I think we, lo- we lose something of the expecting, expectation of God at work in our lives, that God at work in our suffering. But really, I want to encourage you that this isn't just a framework. This is actually, this all points to magnify Christ. This is our reason for worship. That he is the one who has entered into our broken world. That he is the one who has suffered for us and suffered with us. That he is the one who holds the keys to life and death. That he is the one who's opened the way to a place where there will be no more suffering and by his own death. And he is the one who's at work in our lives, working to bring glory to his name through our suffering. Let's lead, let us encourage each other. Let's go and turn into a time of worship from that, to remind ourselves of the person who we're worshipping, the centre of this story, the one who has the power over life and death. I'm going to pray for us. Lord, I thank you that there was a fourth man with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the furnace, that you have walked through the fire with us, that you are walking with us now for those of us who are walking in suffering, that you are present with us in our suffering, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you came into the world, that you didn't stand aloof from our suffering, that you came and experienced suffering with us, but you opened a way to a wonderful place where there will be no more suffering, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, because we have eternal life, because we experience restored life with you, Lord. We thank you that you hold the keys to eternal life. That you are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord Jesus. That by your blood, you have made a way for us to experience no more suffering. And Lord, while we go through this life and we experience the brokenness of a fallen world, Lord, would you help us to remember that? To look to the resurrection hope. To see Lazarus here as a picture of the reality that awaits us that we will one day be with you, worshipping you, that you will be our God and we will be your people and that you'll be present with us, Lord. We thank you for that truth. We worship you, Lord Jesus. We give you thanks. And we ask also, Lord, that you would come and minister to us by your, by your Holy Spirit. We don't want to be people who, have, who undermine the truth of your work in our lives. Lord, would you come and minister to us? Would you help us to step out in the gifts of healing, in ministering to one another and helping each other to see the purposes through suffering, Lord. We know that you are with us now and we thank you for that precious truth. Amen.